Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, history, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Our guest today is Richard Balls, who wrote the book Be Stiff, the Stiff Record Story, celebrating 40 years of stiff. Welcome, Richard. Hi, how you doing, Steve? Doing great. Hey, congrats on the book. I think that this is a really important story about a highly influential little label. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of books about, um, you know, labels over the years, Two-Tone and Factory and uh, EMI and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I mean, I think Stiff was the most fun label of the lot. I have to agree. They had a huge influence on me as a youth. You cut to the chase in the book beautifully. I think the very first sentence in chapter one sets the stage and it says, quote, one word sums up why Stiff Records came into being, frustration. Yeah, I mean, uh, Dave Robinson and also Jake Riviera, who established Stiff Records in the summer of um, 1976, the hot, hottest summer on record, they basically had already been traipsing around a lot of venues, you know, small pubs, seeing really, you know, sensational acts. Incredible songwriters like uh, Elvis Costello and, and Ian Dury, you know, great performers like Graham Parker. But none of these people could get arrested. I mean, the, the industry was just not interested in, in them at all. They, they were kind of square pegs, really. They'd been traipsing around for a long time. Ian Dury had been kicking his heels with Kilburn and the High Roads. Um, Elvis Costello had been in, in sort of groups, but then was by 76 was or 77 was just a sort of solo artist. And, he, he, you know, no one was picking him up, which seems incredible now. Right. You know, when you look back at the kind of canon, you know, that, that people like Elvis Costello, you know, has, has created. But at that time, no one was really bothered. You know, Robinson particularly saw the industry as very lazy. You know, he talks about he thought it should have been working a lot harder, working harder for the artists, but also creating a, a more interesting product for the consumer. There wasn't really any any great interest in that. So I think it was frustration at just seeing these amazing bands who were playing places like the, the Tally Ho in, in Tufnell Park, who should have been on much bigger stages and weren't. But obviously, you know, in the run-up to that, both of them had been involved with bands. And, um, I mean, Robinson had managed Kilburn and the High Roads and, uh, and also Brinsley Schwartz. Jake Riviera had managed Chili Willie and the Red Hot Peppers. They were both circling the same kind of scene, really. Right. And, and at that time, the larger music scene, it was bloated superstars, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly by the mid seventies, mid to late seventies. I mean, what what had been, you know, much more probably about the music uh, had become part of the sort of international jet set. Really, you know, decisions were made in boardrooms. You know, yes, you had some crazy, crazy people there, like you know Walter Yetnikoff and people like that, which was absolutely bonkers. But you know, ultimately, it was a very corporate scene, and uh, and that was another thing that Stiff wanted to do was basically you know, go into that environment and just kick the tables and chairs over and just, just, you know, bring some creativity and bring some energy to it all. You mentioned the two principals, which were Dave Robinson and Jake Riviera, and they're two characters for sure, but they're very different characters, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, Robinson was um, from from Dublin and, you know, he's a little bit more softly spoken, maybe probably a lot more charming. Riviera could get things done and he, he was a force of nature, uh, but he was also a really scary guy. And his kind of way of, of dealing with, with situations was pretty different to Dave's, really. Um, you know, he, he was pretty famous for you know, scrapping with people and, and, and so on and would, I don't know, he'd send a, a shovel in the post to Ireland and say, if you want to really bury my act, here you go. <laughs> so while punk rock would become something quite different, the roots were really anchored in, in what was known in the UK as pub rock. 
Can you describe the pub rock movement and its influence to an American audience? Because that's something quite different than we saw. Yeah, I mean, pub rock was a, quite a small scene, really. I think, you know, one of the things that people, uh, you know, have to remember is that the, these were very, very small scenes. And, and even in for the, some of the more commercial bands, they weren't ever really playing in front of big audiences. I mean, the sort of bands that people talk about now in, in hushed tones, like Joy Division and, I don't know, the Smiths and people like that, they never really played in, in front of big audiences. And pub rock was that times a thousand, really. I mean... I mean, ironically, it was actually an American band, um, Eggs Over Easy, who kind of kicked off the pub rock thing in a sense. They they, they uh, stumbled upon the Tally Ho up in Tufnell Park, which is just a really small little pub. Um, there was some jazz stuff going on there. So they pretended that they were a jazz band, uh, which they weren't. <laughs> and they just started doing, you know, their stuff. But they were very accomplished. What pub rock was about was, you know, you had very, very accomplished musicians playing in these in these often quite grotty little bars. It was just a great vibe. People would pack in there, they would drink, they would see this band, or sometimes several bands in the same venue. And, um, you know, it was really, really exciting. But it was a very small scene, indeed. Yeah, and we're talking about some bands like Brinsley Schwartz, and you mentioned Ian Dury and his first band, Kilburn and the High Roads, and yeah. Ducks Deluxe, The Rumor, yeah. who would go on to background Parker. They all came from that world, and they would all figure into the Stiff Records story. You'd mentioned earlier something about like the frustration and all that, and it was the Jet Set crew, but all of these bands, like you mentioned, you could just go see at a tiny pub for probably, I don't know what the cost was, but pennies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a bunch of really lucky people out there who who got to see I don't know you know Nick Lowe playing with Brinsley Schwartz, Elvis Costello maybe playing on his own. Um, Graham Parker wasn't really part of that scene uh, at all, really. Uh, he he was um, I think working as a, a gas station attendant or something down in Surrey, and he it, Robinson kind of stumbled on him, so he he wasn't really part of that scene. But but the others were. I mean, Kilburn and the High Rose um, was a really motley crew. The the lyrics, of course, were brilliant. Um, I mean, Jury was already producing uh, quite extraordinary lyrics and quite startling ones, really. But he just didn't, at that point, have the sort of musical environment that it needed. Um, so Jury was a kind of work in progress, really, uh, at that point. A lot of the bands, even the, the, the lesser known ones like Kokomo, Chili Willie and the Red Hot Peppers, you know, they, they were really accomplished um, musicians, quite extraordinary players. Well, I love Ian Dury, and one of the reasons is the backing band, because they do so much, you know, whether it's this kind of old-timey dance hall. They had a little reggae thing going on there. They were just really, really good. Yeah, and as, as I say, I mean, just brilliant, brilliant songs. Billy Bentley, you know, and um, Rough Kids, you know, it was really great. Some of those songs, it still played by the Blockheads when they started. They, they still um, played some of those songs uh, in their early gigs. And yet none of these guys and the music, perhaps other than kind of the, you know, the blue collar audience, but none of it was really what we know as punk rock at that point. No, definitely not. I mean, they didn't, um, although, you know, Stiff became associated with uh, punk or synonymous with it, uh, you know, because they had the Damned and Richard Hell and some of the people that we'll talk about. But no, I mean, Robinson and Riviera came from a, a different background, really. I mean, Brinsley Schwartz were kind of almost a bit countryish, really. The bands really that played on the pub rock scene were actually influenced by quite a lot of American bands. So people like uh, Clover, mm. uh, who I think were from Marin County, uh, you had Commander Cody, right? Uh, the band. Little Feet, you know, they were the kind of groups that were really influencing people like Nick Lowe. And that's interesting because those were the bands, the sort of bands that were spared kind of the, uh, 
you know, punk rock hatred, you know, that was reserved for the upper class, Led Zeppelin, the Stones and those kinds of things. <laughs> and Clover would come on to, they backed Elvis on the uh, Miami's Tree record, right? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, because they were kicking their heels at the time because they'd come over here and uh, and I think they were up at Headley Grange, they were doing some recording and they, you know, so they just used them. One of the reasons why punk came to be with Stiff, one of the great things about it, what it was really strong suits, was it was able to react quickly to situations and punk was a situation that came upon the industry quite quickly here. But most of the major labels uh, at the time would have been seen certainly by Stiff to have had the sort of turning circle of an oil tanker <laughs> in order to get, you know, to react and say, right, well, let's get on this and let, you know, we need some of these groups on our label. You know, that would have taken many, many boardroom meetings and processes, whereas Stiff would just say, yeah, we we saw this band down at Dingwalls or somewhere and they'd just get them in the pub next door to Stiff's offices and they'd just sign them up. Right, and they'd have a record out within weeks, not years or months. Yeah, absolutely. And a week later, they'd thrown them into Pathway. I've actually walked past that place. I mean, <laughs> you, you stand outside there. This is in Islington in North London. And it's, it's basically like a kind of flat, which is like an annex-type flat. It's tiny. I mean, I've not been inside it, but you can see it's absolutely tiny. And, you know, the, the thought of Elvis Costello and the whole of Clover and the crew, <laughs> right? you know, absolutely beggars belief. But yeah, I mean, they were doing stuff on the cheap, to, to put it mildly. I think that's the studio you mentioned. Somebody's in the bathroom, someone's in the hall, a couple guys on the stairs. Yeah. Yeah, that's a far cry from uh, these recording studios today. I mean, this is like a very, a, a real cheap and dirty, I suppose, Motown, because, you know, you had almost a kind of in-house production crew or band sometimes as well. Uh, Nick Lowe would be behind the desk and you'd have um, guys from the rumor on drums and bass. You know, they, they'd just throw people in there and, and just say, well, get, you know, here we go. Let's, let's get, it, get it made. Hey, and there's some classics in there. I'm sure there's some uh, some detritus as well. But it's, uh, <laughs> you know, so you mentioned The Damned. And I think it's their first record that really set the stage for, quote unquote, punk rock and what that would sound like. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I think they that, that was the blueprint, really, um, you know, new, new rows, because for all sorts of reasons, really, I suppose it is the introduction, quite an unusual, uh, you know, she really going out with him right. at the beginning, and then the drums come, it's like an absolute battering. There's no uh, heavy production on it. I think that was done at Pathway. And it was uh, just incendiary, you know, that, that basically was akin to putting a bomb under the, the car of, of the labels at the time. No one knew what the hell was was happening. Yeah, that's one of the first ones I heard. And I just remember, like you said, incendiary, It's it was just so loud and so fast. And it's just like nothing you'd yeah, heard. Yeah. Do you know, you mentioned the issue really going out with him. Um, and, you know, that's a quote from the Shangri-Las. Was that intentional? Yeah, I think so. And I probably was, you know, was, I mean, Stiff were into like really into their music history. Riviera and Robinson certainly were, you know, really knew their stuff. Yeah, there were lots of tributes down the years from Stiff to the way they used to, for example, put other records sleeves on their own products. <laughs> Basically, what was happening with the majors, they were just sitting there scratching their heads thinking, what what the actual hell are these people doing? Why are they promoting records that they're not even making? Um, but it was about music they liked. That was the point. The point of Stiff was it was music that they liked. You know, you had a lot of records that maybe didn't catch um, because they just liked it. You know, Riviera and Robinson liked it. That was good enough. And there was certainly, you know, a, a subversive thing going on there as well, where they were trying to upend the music industry as it was yeah. at the time. Yeah, I mean, there's no there's no question. Uh, this is where Stiff, I think, were really ahead of their time. I think nowadays, 
who are like them would be called disruptors. Right. Uh, R- Riviera and Robinson were disruptors. They weren't just there to, to do their own thing. They wanted to kick the whole thing over and and really give it a you know a run for its money and actually show them if you work harder for artists and you and you make a product that's actually uh, desirable as artifact. You know that was another thing I think that they maybe that's something that they left behind actually because the album was the was the thing that was ruling the world through the 70s you know certainly from late 60s right through to, to kind of when stiff came along the single yes you had top of the pops and and you know and, and singles were popular the single as artifact was was not something that ever anyone had really ever conceived until stiff came along and they really exploited the seven inch to the extent that they would even make them limited yeah, I mean, and, and they would do things that, that again, the, the majors would see as Harry Carey, like put, having a really popular record and then del- deliberately <laughs> deleting it <laughs> and, then, and then re-releasing it all over again. You know, the, if the Dam's first record set the stage for what punk rock would sound like, the other thing is the album cover, which was also unlike anything people had seen. Yeah. It set a tone of fun, outrageousness, you know, perhaps it was yeah. juvenile. But as you yeah. recount it, that, that whole thing was completely spontaneous. The photography shoot for that that was used on the sleeve was never designed to, uh, or intended in any way to be on the album cover. Um, I think they just somebody just had the whipped cream and all the stuff, and that, that the damned were into slapstick. It was tongue in cheek. They didn't really take themselves massively seriously. It was all a bit theatrical. Barney Bubbles saw the pictures from that. That was just obviously the um, to him the, the album cover. And I know on the back again another typically stiff thing. They put a, a picture of Eddie and the Hot Rods. <laughs> A band that had nothing to do with Stiff on the back, and then a sticker over it saying, "Oh, sorry, as a mis- we've mispressed this." Wow! And for those who don't know, basically, it was a food fight with cake and whipped cream that that resulted in the seminal band's first album cover. So, yeah. you mentioned another early and critical addition, another character to be sure, which was Barney Bubbles. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was an absolutely amazing uh, designer, incredibly different from really anything else. If you look back at a lot of album covers or single covers, not that there were that many up to the mid-70s, but they often just had a picture of the band on the front, the picture of the singer. They weren't really very, uh, not a lot of effort or thought had been put into it. Whereas if you look at some of the stuff that Barney Bubbles came up with, like for Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick, maybe, or Reasons right. To Be Cheerful, What A Waste, there was no picture of Ian or the Blockheads on the cover of those records. They were unique. You know, they were actual graphic designs that, that he had come up with. Really clever, you know, iconic to this day. Absolutely. And, and his design and vision, you know, fitted in so perfectly with that kind of subversive approach. Yeah. It was also, I guess, like Jake Riviera's personality as well. And, you know, they just had a very unique marketing brand. It was the kind of perfect set of circumstances. It had everything. You had you had um, Riviera's kind of aggressive uh, approach on everything. Just go and get it. You had Robinson's his love of music, and you had you know the visual side of it was was absolutely massive. And Barney Bubbles was the perfect designer. Really, he set the tone for what was to come. I mean, you know, with with all the stuff around coloured vinyl, and they just made the industry realised a kid could for, could buy a single for sixty five p or seventy p, and that. That, you know, with your pocket money, you could afford that. Right, right. And, you know, for me, a lot of, you know, my exposure were the slogans and the buttons that announced Stiff Records, who they were, why they were here. And most people probably know the classic button, if it ain't stiff, it ain't worth a fuck. But there were so many others. 
If it means everything to everyone, it must be a stiff, was on the very first Nick Lowe single. Fuck art, let's dance. That's a classic. And then most fittingly, we came, we saw, we left. Yeah, that, that pretty much sums up stiff, really. I mean, it, I love the whole sort of thing about undertakers to the industry, the idea that they were basically saying these acts are dead. <laughs> We're kind of resurrecting them somehow, these kind of corpses. Um, you know, they had posters with literally with gravestones with their artist names written on them. Wow. Um, yeah, and the, and the buttons, or I guess badges as they're called in the UK, you know, they, they went the extra mile for marketing artists, you know. Um, yeah. The other thing was that they were engaging with an audience of like, if you were 13 or 14, um, you know, you wouldn't have been, well, certainly you wouldn't have been into prog rock. You wouldn't have been into albums with 25 minute tracks on them, you know, and, and what you could get for as a 13 was, you know, you, a 13 year old, you could afford a, a badge, you could afford a cloth patch, you know, you, and you'd like to have a poster on your wall with all this stuff on it. So, you know, they really tapped into the, into a market that actually had been quite neglected. Absolutely. And at 13 or 14, as you mentioned, you would walk around with a button or a badge that said, I'm a blockhead, or frankly, I, I don't give a gom. Yeah. And, you know, one of my favorites, too, is if it's Lena, you'll love it. I just think that's yeah. so clever. Yeah, and it gave personality, not not that they needed it, but it gave personality or added to the personality of, of the people uh, on the label. That was one of the things that I personally loved about Stiff. Probably one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was it wasn't just the music. It was actually the characters, Lena, Reckless Eric, I mean, Ian Jury. I mean, they, they were just astonishing individuals, really, and, and this played to all of that. Right. And what they did also was, you know, in pumping up these artists in that same kind of crazy way, you know, they built the larger thing, you know, that people would probably look at Stiff and say, what do they have coming out? Because, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll wear yeah. that. You know? Yeah, definitely. And, and, and also this this goes back to a time. Uh, which is kind of for well for, for for younger people now must seem completely prehistoric. I mean, you actually had to kind of mail order. You had to and get this, some of these records through the post. Right. So yeah, you're right. People would be thinking, "What's coming out next? What are right. they going to do next?" Boy, oh boy, when that post showed up at your house, what a day! Oh uh, yeah, and, and you had to have the the picture sleeve if there was one, or if there was another picture sleeve that was you know harder to get, then that you had to have that. You know, I could talk about their visual approach because as a, as a designer and as a fan, I just think they're so revolutionary. But, um, yeah. you know, let's talk about some of the music and some of the artists. You mentioned Nick Lowe. He had the honor of being the very first stiff seven-inch single, which was So It Goes, backed by Heart of the City in 1976. And that is a great twofer. But why Nick Lowe? I mean, he was a mate of, of, of Robinson and Riviera. I mean, they both knew him really well. I mean, R Riviera and himself, she had a flat at one point. Um, Robinson obviously knew him from managing Brinsley Schwartz. He was one of the ones that they really felt deserved a platform. You know, they couldn't believe none of the uh, big labels had actually signed Nick Lowe. I think he was the one that they really wanted to give voice to, really, and, and support. And also, he, he had some banging tunes. Absolutely. It, it is incredible, again, to look back and look at look some of the records that Stiff put out early on, particularly So It Goes, none of which charted. In fact, it you know, didn't even get in the top 100, never mind the top 40. It's such a great song too. I remember my purchase was the Pure Pop For Now People LP, which had both of those on it. Yeah. You know, the, over in America, the singles didn't quite make it. I was down in, in Miami, but they probably got into New York. So, you know, when I bought that record, uh, that was a really, really strong record. 
Yeah, I mean, it's got, you know, D-A-E, those chords at the beginning. It's got, you know, I, I, how many records start? I remember the night the kid cut off his right arm. <laughs> yeah, that that's a great record. And, and, you know, at least over here, and probably it sounds like over there, it was completely different from what you were hearing, certainly on the radio and probably through friends and things like that. It was just yeah. something else. Yeah, yeah. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. You write in your book, and you mentioned this earlier, but if one record perfectly encapsulated the ethos of Stiff, it's My Aim is True. And you talk about, you know, Barney Bubble's iconic design and Riviera's, you know, marketing slogans and a very unique artist. It did what the major labels had failed to do for years. Well, they, they made a, a, somebody who looked like a kind of um, supply teacher sort of reject uh, Buddy Hoddy figure. They made Elvis Costello cool, which if you'd seen him performing in some of the clubs that he'd been in, you know, prior to, to when they got their hands on him, when he was playing as DP Costello. I mean, the, the idea that you could have transformed him into something like the, the sort of figurehead of the new wave, I mean, that, that just would have been laughable. And and that, that's what they did. And also with, with My Aim is True, everything about it was classic stiff. I mean, right down to the checkered design on the front where you had Elvis is King written right. in, in the white white squares which of course as we know came out eventually around the time uh, that Elvis Presley died uh, in the summer of 77 and then then of course that caused a huge commotion um, because it was seen as sort of disrespectful that's what they did and also that that sleeve had different colors on the back so one was green one was yellow one was red you know all that kind of stuff it created a, a buzz around not only the music but the actual product you know, you mentioned the Elvis brand and, and the way he looked glass and all, but that was really born in the Stiff offices, right? Like, they put the glasses. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff that happened at Stiff was out of banter and, and people just pissing about in, in uh, Alexander Street. Small office, a um, lot of the artists used to just call in and sit there. And, you know, a reckless Eric would call by and chat away to the, you know, secretary and just everyone be hanging around. Some of the artists even helped put the uh, record sleeves on the records and bag them up and stuff like that. You know, it was just a social scene there anyway. When Costello was there one day, I think Riviera just said jokingly, oh, we're going to call you Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> 
And Costello was thinking, like, they're just mucking about, but it's stuck. But they were thinking about, how are we going to portray this guy? How are we going to sell him? Um, and Suzanne Spiro, who eventually married Bruce Thomas, who the Elvis Costello bassist from the attractions, she she was the secretary in the office, and she went out and got these glasses, these kind of Buddy Holly glasses, uh, and brought them back and gave them to him. I mean, that was that was a speci- you know a deliberate act. And uh, I know Ian Gorm, I interviewed him for the book. He was in there one day, and he was giving Costello a lift to the tube station. And as they were leaving, Robinson shouted out the door, and put those fucking glasses on Elvis. <laughs> you know, so they, they were, Elvis was completely bemused by all this, you know. This was them creating something, you know, around the music. They knew the music was brilliant, but the music had been brilliant before and no one was buying. So they, they were trying to give it the environment it needed. Well, there's no doubt, uh, I'm guessing everywhere, but I know here in America that the look of Elvis was perhaps the first thing on everyone's lips, you know, and then you get to know the music and you're like, holy crap, you know, this guy is amazing. And I love the fact that those, um, those early records on Stiff, a lot of them, they sound so raw. I mean, there's, it's just someone in a room, you know, with, with, you know, maybe a bassist, a drummer and, and, uh, you know, and guitar. Uh, A lot of it was done really, really simply. And I think, Maybe again, my aim is true. There's some brilliant songs on there, but like Ian Jury with Kilburns, they, the Kilburns weren't exactly right for for him. Um, and in the same way, obviously, he did that with Clover because Stiff presented that. You know, the attractions obviously were that driving energy needed. Right. And Clover was on the first record, I think, only, correct? And and there was some, was it a Huey Lewis connection or something? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Huey Lewis um, was obviously in, in Clover and um, wasn't needed, of course, on, on the record uh, as such, because uh, obviously Costello was, was doing the vocals. And um, But he, he was hanging around um, uh, at the stiff office. And when, El- when Reckless Eric uh, went in uh, after a few drinks too many and to hand his tape in with his songs, the person he actually handed the tape over was... <laughs> Huey Lewis. Classic. So there were some American punk bands as well on Stiff Records and legendary singles such as Satisfaction by Devo. And you mentioned Richard Hell and Blank Generation was a Stiff product in the UK. They also did an Akron, Ohio compilation. How did those records go over in the UK? Um, they kind of went down like a lead balloon, really. I mean, uh, it, like the act. Well, certainly the Akron compilation. Liam Sternberg, you know, knew them, and they said to him, "Look, just put a record together." They'd already discovered Devo, and I think Sternberg or somebody was saying, "Look." where they're from in Akron, Ohio, there's a load of other good bands. And they said, oh, great. Oh, great. Well, you make a record with that then. So he went off and got all these all these bands from that area. And of course, they went completely to town. Brilliant. I mean, it's, the, the, the sleeve of that is, is genius. It's got, a, it had a scratch and sniff where you could smell burnt rubber. It had all the bells and whistles that you would expect on a stiff release. Commercially, it, it did nothing at all. Um, Richard Hell, again, that's now seen as an, a really, really important record, but it, it did nothing. Yeah, it, it didn't do a whole lot over here, uh, sales-wise, I'm sure. It did certainly promote punk rock in, in America and perhaps a different kind of punk rock. And, you know, I find that whole thing fascinating because Ian Dury and the Blockheads would play a monumental part in the stiff story outselling most of the other acts with new boots and panties he was the king but in the states yeah. he didn't quite do it i think um, a lot of it a lot of stiff acts really were very english very idiosyncratic you know just quintessentially british really in the sort of things they were singing about kind of the way they looked and sounded so it's not really a great surprise that they didn't really connect maybe with with american audiences certainly not on a large scale really 
Well, speaking of Brit-centric, can you tell the story as to what is behind the title New Boots and Panties? Yeah, I mean, as I understand it, they're, they're the only two items of clothing that Ian Dury would consider buying new. <laughs> oh, that's classic. Um, <laughs> Got to have both of those. Though. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about Stiff's unique marketing and another thing they embraced, and musically you mentioned it, the Motown idea of traveling shows was something that they were in on early. They did some by train and they featured most of the artists we've talked about, some of whom are now superstars. What were those tours like? Competitive? The Motown Reviews was, I think, one of the big uh, influences of it. It's quite a lot of other um, rock acts toured like that as well in the 60s. Uh, Robinson would have had some some, uh, experience of that. Jake Riviera had been involved in uh, something called the Naughty Rhythms Tour, which was very similar. That was almost like a precursor to the Stiff Bus Tour, really, and that had Chili Willy and the Red Hot Peppers and bands like that on it. Yeah, I think they just saw it as a as a really great way of promoting, you know, multiple acts in the same tour, and also. In the first instance with the bus, where they piled them all on a bus and drove them all around colleges, that worked phenomenally well because the blockheads and the attractions kind of went head to head and they were just absolutely on fire trying to beat each other every night so that works fantastically on the train tour it didn't work so well i think it was i mean even by stiff standards that was a pretty disparate bunch of people who was on that one so that was like jonah louie um rachel sweet lena lovich and mickey jupp and reckless. I mean, you know that that was you know your Rachel Sweet was like a sixteen-year-old schoolgirl from from Akron. Um, she was on the train with a with a teacher doing her homework. Right, right. I think it's the bus tour then that you know doing some research. I found some really incredible uh, YouTube footage. And, yeah. You know of Elvis Costello. I, he's speaking to some woman on there, but then you mentioned that they were going at each other, and and there's the encore. Uh, I think that Ian Dury was singing where they all came up, and you yeah. can tell that there's some tension there. <laughs> Definitely, you can. See, there's some great um, stills from that where you can see Elvis Costello's body language is just just classic. You know, it was generally considered that the blockheads kind of won on points if you were to bring a boxing analogy to it you know mm. they, they were blistering the blockheads i mean they were just so so good a lot of experience because a lot of them had played in the same band anyway right. so they were as tight as anything originally uh, stiff had intended to to rotate the bill with, with reckless headlining one night and and then nick Lowe another night but that that, that didn't last long well, you can tell, uh, like you said, the body language, you know, Elvis Costello is either glowering or staring at the stage floor for most of the footage that I saw. So you mentioned uh, a few women artists, which Stiff was, you know, also quick to pick up on, yeah. there were, you know, the adverts, Lena Lovich, uh, who would get on MTV and Rachel Sweet, who was only 14 and, and kind of a, you know, country pop stance. You know, what was their idea behind this? Uh, when the when the label first started, uh, it was generally guys really from from that pub rock scene i mean if you wrote a book about the women the women of pub rock i think that'd probably be the smallest book in history there basically weren't any you know it was a completely male dominated scene pub rock there were no real uh, female acts that on that also when they needed uh, new acts to come in uh, after jerry and costello and nick Lowe had, had gone they turned to to you know to people like rachel sweet like Lena lovich jane Eyre, and the belvedere's I mean, Lena was born in America. There's a lot of American influence on Stiff. Yeah, Lena's pretty out there, though. I, I would say that she was another one who didn't quite. I mean, she was on MTV, but um, I think she's she's probably not recognized for some of the the great things that she did even here. Yeah. And one of the things, again, Barney Bubbles pops up. You know, with the adverts. You know, his decision on the album cover was uh, a bit controversial. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, the, she didn't want her picture on the front of them. This is the single, I think, One Called Wonders, where he designed it just with her face. Again, really iconic single cover. It was kind of obvious to him. You know, he looked at the um, the stills, and it was an obvious thing to him to, to have her on the sleeve. We're speaking with Richard Balls, who's the author of Be Stiff, the Stiff Records story. You can't talk stiff without madness. And they did well right from the first record. And they just got huge and owned MTV. What was, what was their appeal? Yeah, they were like um, everything that stiff was, really. They were fun. They were visual. They had pop songs because, you know, ultimately, really, it was a pop label, pure pop for mm-hmm. now people. And Madness were, you know, they were energetic. There was a lot of them. Um, they were perfect for video. So I think when you mentioned about MTV, obviously MTV was all about video. And some of the original acts on Stiff definitely would not have lent themselves, you know, to video. But Madness were, were absolutely tailor-made for for the MTV era. Things like Nightboat to Cairo, where they're all wearing the fez hats. And, and I mean, they, they were made for that era. Yeah, and, the, the you know, the sense of fun, because most of their videos that you mentioned, I think one of them, the guy fell out of the sky or something and yeah. got hurt, and uh, the Fez hats, you know, they, they would do that. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm I'm 52 now, so I was I was at school when when baggy trousers came out, and you know everybody came to school the next day. Everyone had seen that video on top of the wow. pops with with Lee, you know, um, flying you know flying through the air with his saxophone, and and I, like you like you alluded to, I mean, Robinson had just seen a crane over the road and says, "Oh, can we just borrow that?" I mean, talk about health and safety. <laughs> for, forget that. He just basically said, "Yeah, get that crane over here. How much do we have to pay for it?" And just hoisted him up in the air. In Madness, they were huge over there before MTV. You mentioned Top of the Pops and those kinds of things. Yeah. And um, I mean, it, you know, it's not like MTV, they broke them in, in some sort of way, but they were very successful. Yeah, I suppose it's important to, to remember they'd already had um, a hit before they got onto Stiff, which is probably the only band, or might, might be the only band that actually applies to with Stiff, because mostly Stiff launched people. They'd obviously had the single The Prince out on two-tone. So there was a real bun fight for, for their signatures, and um, quite a lot of other labels wanted to sign uh, them. And I think Robinson effectively just locked them in a room and, and, you know, and sorted it out, you know. And, you know, the two-tone thing that you mentioned, that's important, you know, to point out that period, I think. I mean, this is all happening, I think, within a, in a really serious unemployment crisis in the UK, yeah. particularly amongst young people. And, you know, there are some racial things going on. And then the two-tone movement kind of springs up and really bonds a lot of those people and, and sort of re-energizes Jamaica yeah. and reggae music. And, and Madness made it a lot of fun. Yeah, they made it a lot of fun. I mean, you had Bad Manners who were on Magnet over here. I mean, in one way, you look back and think, actually, Bad Manners would have been a real, you know, would have been a great band to have had on Stiff. I mean, they were fun. They dressed up. You know, they they, they were all about the visual and, um, and again, videos and stuff. Um, and Madness were the sort of goose that laid the golden egg for Stiff, really, because as, as time went along, although Stiff started with a whole bunch of really great songwriters, which is, of course, what record labels want, is people to just keep producing the, the goods, those people had gone so in time certainly by 1980 Ian Jury Elvis Costello Nick Lowe Graham Parker they, 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 they all, they'd all gone really from from Stiff they didn't have songwriters just uh, you know knocking songs off the off the production line off the conveyor belt and Madness were the only act doing that 
Yeah, it it does seem to me that Stiff sort of loses the way and then and then perhaps resorted to some of the major label tricks that they originally rebelled against. But I want to go back real quick because one of the things that also I think hurt Stiff in the long run is, you know, right around the time of the, the tours that we spoke about, Robinson and Riviera decided to go separate ways and they split up the acts. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 there was a massive fight. Some people might say that it was surprising that it hadn't, hadn't happened sooner, given the, the, their personalities. There was a massive uh, fight one Saturday afternoon in the stiff offices, which I, I think ended up with a few bottles being thrown through windows. And, and the upshot of it was that um, they, they decided to carve it up and that uh, Robinson would, would stay uh, and continue to run stiff with um, uh, Ian Jury, Reckless Eric and The Damned at that point were still there. Uh, whereas... Jake would, went off to form Radar um, with Andrew Lauder, and he took Elvis Costello, Nick Lowe, and the Yachts with him. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, the way that that carves up, too, because I would guess in the UK, you know, those first three, Ian Dury and, and the like, were extremely popular. And then there was Elvis Costello, who, you know, would break huge in the States, certainly, and worldwide. So, you know, the, the labels compromised a little bit, the Stiff Records label. You know, we mentioned, or I mentioned, rather, uh, losing their way. And Temple Tudor did okay, but it seemed to be a bit of a, a ploy. And then there was someone like Alvin Stardust, who had some hits in the 70s, and they relaunched him. What were they doing at this point? Yeah, I mean, basically, they were running out of money. <laughs> they were kind of victims of their own success, in a sense, because they, they started off with, with a very little office in Alexander Street. Then they took the office next to it. They expanded. By the time Madness were having hits and all the rest of it, they'd moved up, I think, at that point to another place, maybe be in Camden. Yeah, so they got more staff, bigger premises, bigger rents to pay, uh, more mouths to feed. And yeah, I mean, the, the hits were kind of starting to dry up. You know, it's easy to think, oh, yeah, there was like this real hit factory. When you look back at some of the Madness videos, like It Must Be Love and things like that, you think, oh, yes, if they had all those hits. Actually, Madness would put out a record and there might be 10 singles between that and the next Madness record, none of which would have got anywhere near the top 40. And it wouldn't be until Madness put out the next single that, that they'd have a hit. So they were completely reliant, really. Uh, on madness in that sense. Absolutely. And and that, that kind of affected their A&R a little bit. I mean, they turned to, you know, Dave Stewart and Barbara Gaskin, who were both prog rock veterans, you know, and then Tracy Ullman was on Stiff. And that's incredibly weird to me. Yeah. I mean, incredibly weird is, yeah, definitely. I mean, she, I, I understand, is now massive in in america uh just just a huge kind of name um she wasn't so big a name here at the time she was known for doing comedy three of a kind but yeah i think again it was just look we'll just do anything and robinson was obsessed with cover versions i mean he was obsessed right. i mean lena lovich told me when i interviewed her that you know they were desperate for her they kept trying to persuade her to do cover versions of like motown songs and stuff and she she wasn't having it and maybe a label if you look at a label like a&m at the time had joe jackson squeeze you know, the police probably still. They had really, really good songwriters on their roster and Stiff didn't have that. So they were kind of looking at cover versions as a way of getting into the top 40. And because it had worked, you know, they thought, oh, let's let's do this again. Yeah, and I wonder too if some of the, the major labels hadn't caught up with them. You mentioned all three of those acts, Joe Jackson and Squeeze and uh, the police. And, you know, maybe they had just been marketed in a way that they may not have been before the success of Stiff. And, and you know, they went to the top of the heap, you know. 
Yep, yep. And uh, yeah, and like I say, having, having the songwriters on board, um, they always knew that was really important. Uh, I think when Casella was signed originally, I think their intention was to use him as a songwriter for other artists on the label. They definitely appreciated the real value of a songwriter, an in-house kind of songwriter, if you like, uh, you know, in the way that Motown was able to produce so many records. Yeah, by the time, you know, Jury went and, and uh, Nicolo and Elvis Costello, you, they just didn't have those people around. And, um, you know, they, they were looking to cover. And of course, it's my party. The, the Leslie Gore song produced one of the only number ones it ever had. That was Dave Stewart and Barbara Gaskin, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Stiff had three number one records since you know when it was around, and uh, one was "Hit Me with Your Rhythm Stick." Classic. Another one was uh, "House of Fun Madness," yep. and the other one was uh, "It's My Party." Wow. So Dave Robinson, though he carried Stiff, but he also partnered with Island Records and Chris Blackwell. And at some point, he started to manage both. You know, that seems maybe the beginning of the end. I wonder about your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think Robinson's even been quoted himself as saying that was one of the worst decisions of his life, you know, kind of selling out a bit to Ireland. I think what happened was it was a better deal for Ireland than it was for Stiff. Mm. I mean, he had a great impact in terms of like what was going on with like Frankie Goes to Hollywood and all their hits. And and then he had the Bob Marley Legend album that Robinson had a big part in curating as one of one of the most successful records of its of its kind. Yeah, he, he chose those tracks, right? He put that together, essentially, which I never knew. Incredible. I think with Stiff, I think when he... Went over to Ireland. I think he, he kind of took his eye off the ball. He became much more involved with Ireland, and I think it drifted. Yeah, and maybe it just ran its course too. You know, I mean that that happens. I think it's fair to say. What are your thoughts on this? There's a definitely a different perception of stiff records in England than America. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not too sure really how it's perceived in in the states. Here, it's definitely seen as a really iconic record label they were disruptors and i think people see the legacy now you know they see what what they left behind um they really did have a huge Im- impact on on the industry uh, that we see today um, i'm not sure you'd know a lot more than i would about how, how it's perceived in the states like i say a lot of the acts were maybe just too idiosyncratic just too english I, I think that's probably right. Although I will say, I think to some, and I, I would raise my hand for that, they were a bit of a lifesaver in high school. And um, But then you've got the people like, uh, you know, Number One by Lena Lovitch, or you play that video for people and people are like, oh yeah, I remember that song. Or, or certainly almost any Madness tune is going to capture a lot of dudes' attentions, you know. Um, a lot of it was, was luck. Um, I remember at the time, I can't remember which record it was, one of the Lena singles was, I think, about to be played on top of the Pops one week. There was a strike, like a technician strike at the BBC, um, and Top of the Box didn't go out that week. Now, you know, something like that can have a really massive impact because it's all about momentum. Right. right. Uh, you know, and that can send a record suddenly going the, the opposite way. Sometimes someone comes along just at the right moment, and, uh, and sometimes it doesn't. And I think, yeah, I think, as you say, maybe I think it was also kind of running its course a bit as well. Well, Dave Robinson said that Stiff Records was to be a conduit for people who could not find the music business any other way. Is that the Stiff Records legacy? Yeah, definitely. Um, a lot of those people, even, you know, I mean, Ian Jury, I mean, took new boots and panties. He took that around everywhere and nobody wanted it at all. I mean, no one got it. So in the end, uh, because his management was supposed to be upstairs from Stiff, he just, you know, his management just took it downstairs and said to Stiff, look, do you want it? 
can you do anything with it? I mean, incredible to think that now. And even Elvis Costello, I mean, who is now, as you say, a global act, you know, no one was picking pick him up. So yeah, one of the legacies is that they they gave a, gave an opportunity to people who couldn't who weren't given house room in in the industry. And I think also the, one of their great legacies is just really um, give uh, that creative approach to the product, to music as an as artifact. It wasn't just the music was amazing. They wanted to say this music is amazing. It deserves a really great picture sleeve it deserves some crazy posters which was really really out of step with the time too and and you know perhaps that is part of their legacy also is you know they really fed a a fan base that was craving that and it might have been small at the time but i think you can see you know a lot of that thought process resonate through the industry or certainly through bands and their websites and their merch you know Sure. To this day, people love box sets and they love the booklets that come with it. They love, you know, all that kind of paraphernalia, gatefold sleeves. You know, there wasn't that kind of care given to the product. Um, And Stiff reckoned that the punter was getting uh, shortchanged. We're speaking with Richard Balls, who's the author of Be Stiff, the Stiff Records story. It's a great book. Uh, You've also authored a biography on Ian Dury with his cooperation before he passed in 2000. Uh, and you have another upcoming book that's also tied to this. Can you tell us about that? I've just finished um, writing a, a biography of Shane McGowan from the Pogues, and it's going to be published uh, probably in the autumn of this year, maybe uh, September time, by Omnibus Press, which is the publisher that um, did my book about Ian Jury. It did come out of the stiff book because I interviewed Shane for for that book. Later on, when I wanted to do another project, I just kept coming back to Shane. Well, he's another one of those legendary figures, but somewhat on the fringe. You know, the people who love Shane McGowan and the Pogues really, really love Shane McGowan and the Pogues. Yeah, I mean, he he is just idolized. You know, he's got a huge fan base. Uh, and if you look at bands, you know, like uh, the Dropkick Murphys and Flogging Molly and people like that, you know, I mean, he, he you know, he had a huge uh, impact on that. And again, I mean, a little bit like some of the earlier bands and acts on Stiff, you know, they, 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 they weren't, there was no big queue forming to sign the Pogues. Yeah, well, listen, I'd love to have you back when the Shane book is out and I read it. I also think I'm going to have to get the Ian Dury book because, I, you know, in speaking with you, I, I just find his music so fascinating and, and he's a fascinating character. So maybe we'll do the twofer again if, uh, if you're up for it. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to. Well, thank you very much, Richard Balls. The book is Be Stiff, The Stiff Record Story. You can find it usually online. It's getting harder to find, so if you see it, you should pick it up. And it's a great read. Thanks, Richard. Cheers, Steve. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com. You can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an all-music-books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.